Well, let's do this. If you are a sports fan, this is an exciting season. I mean, you've got the baseball playoffs right around the corner. And the best part about it is you've got football season starting this week. Man, I love it. It's super exciting. If, you know, if you are a football fan, you know this past weekend started the college football season. And, uh, you know, in Yakima, in Washington, you're either uh, a dog or a cat. You're either God's creation of a dog or the, you're that other thing called a cat. So you're either a husky or a cougar. And I'll support both teams. I will just like my Washington teams. But this past weekend, the Washington State University Cougars of Pullman, they kicked off their football season and played against Portland State. Now, this is a much lesser team. Portland State is a Division II team. They're like second tier compared to where WSU is. And WSU lost to Portland State. <laughs> I know, it's, it's tragic. You know, one of the things with WSU, the Cougars, and they have struggled through several years of just mediocrity. But I guarantee you, as that football team was getting ready this season, you know, I guarantee you that none of those students on that football team wanted to be satisfied with just mediocrity. I bet none of them, that was their goal. We just want to be okay. No, I don't think that's what they sought after. Any little kid, any athlete, their desire is to be good. Their desire is to be great. Nobody desires to be mediocre. The same is true of us in our lives. None of us think, man, man, man if I could just be mediocre, if I could just be all right, that would be awesome. No, that's not the way it works. So in your workplace, in your workplace, maybe you're a boss. Nobody dreams and desires to be a mediocre boss. I mean, truthfully, if anybody got this coffee cup that says world's most mediocre boss, that would not be a good Christmas gift. As a parent, I'm a dad of, of five kids. No dad wants to be the world's most okayest dad. It's not what you want. You want to be a great dad. Single ladies, single ladies, you ever, you ever seen a single lady wear this shirt right here that says searching for Mr. Mediocre? No, ladies don't search for Mr. Mediocre. They search for Mr. I have a job, Mr. I have a car, Mr. I have my own house. You know, and as a pastor, I don't want just to be okay as a church. I don't want to settle for mediocre as a church. I hope you don't want that either. Because I want to keep praying. I want to keep pushing. I want to keep encouraging. I want to keep reaching. I want to keep loving so that we move past being just okay. We move into something great. We move into something that God can use to change lives. We sang a song a few months ago. The song said this, it's time for us to more than just survive. We were made to thrive. I believe that. I believe that we were made to thrive. And if we want to thrive in the practical areas of life, how much more significant should we want to thrive in our spiritual life? How much more should we want to thrive as a Christian? 
And this is why I'm so excited for our new sermon series that we're starting today called Pursuing God's Heart, a sermon series looking at the life of David. See, two times in the Bible, twice, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And you can search throughout all of Scripture, and I, and I don't see that same description being used for any other person. Shouldn't this be what we want? To be known as men and women and teens and, and people who are pursuing God's own heart? I mean, isn't this the, the, epitome, uh, the epitome of spiritual success, being called a person after God's own heart? So David is going to become an object lesson, an object lesson for you and I to pursue God's heart and to thrive in our relationship with him. We say, well, who is David? David, he's a man that came from humble beginnings, backwoods, shack type of upbringing. Think about like Wiley City, podunk little town. David, he's a, as a teenager, he was anointed to be king. David, he's known as the giant killer. He's a successful soldier and an even greater leader. He's the faithful friend. He's the one with the crown. And as you look at his successes, he almost seems to be like this mystical creature, like this superhuman, uh, maybe like a, like a demigod, like, like Percy Jackson. You think, I can't relate to him because I don't have this perfect, neat, and clean life. But you've got to remember, David was called a man after God's own heart. He's a man. He's a person just like you and I. So sure, we read his story and we see his successes and we see God's blessing, but his story also has a dark side like so many of our stories. David's story was marked by pride. His story was marked with lust. His story was marked with a political sex scandal that would have made Bill Clinton and Elliot Spitzer look like Boy Scouts. His story included adultery. It included murder. It included rebellious kids who not only rejected him, but rejected his God. His story included struggling marriages. See, David is a man not much different than you and I. He struggled through some of the same things that you and I have and will struggle with. Yet God could take a man like that not a perfect man, but a man whose heart longed to please God. A man who obeyed God when it was a tough. A man who repented when he failed. God could take a man like that and make him known as a man after God's own heart over 3,000 years later. If God can do that, then isn't there hope for you and for I? There should be hope for every one of us. Before we get to David, the king of Israel, we need to go back about 40 years and get a sense of the background and the history of what's happening in David's time so we can appreciate the world in which David lived. 1,000 years before Christ, this was a rough time for the nation of Israel. You have the great leaders of Joshua and Moses, and at this point they are just history-classed heroes. The last 300 years, Israel has experienced a, a spiritual winter that had frozen people's faith. The author of the book of Judges, he describes the, the days between Joshua and Samuel as a, with, with a very dangerous sentence. 
He says in Judges chapter 21, In those days, Israel did not have a king. Everyone did what was seemed right in his own eyes. See, Israel was a long way from God. Corruption fueled disruption. Immorality spurned brutality. And then there were the Philistines. This was a bloodthirsty, giant-breeding group that was the arch enemy of Israel. They did everything better than Israel. They had better weapons, better soldiers, better cities, everything. Samuel, this was the God-appointed high priest over Israel. He was the judge. He was the last of the judges who fought hard for Israel. He judged and led the people well, but at this point, he's an old man. And the people, the elders of Israel, they became disillusioned with Samuel. And so the elders called Samuel over and said, hey, here's what we want. We want a king. We've got three reasons why we want a king. First, we want a king because you are old. Second, we want a king because your sons don't walk in your ways. They don't follow after God. We don't want them ruling and judging us. And third, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. All the other nations, they have a king. So we want you, Samuel, to appoint us a king so we can be like everybody else. Why is there always that temptation for us to look and have everything else that everybody else has? So God tells Samuel, give the people a warning. Warn them what will happen if they get a king. But then I want you to give them what they want. So with God's warning... The elders of Israel, they chose a man named Saul to be their king. Saul was a good candidate to, be the, to become the king. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He came and he swept everybody off their feet. Saul seemed to have the ability to gather people around of cause. I mean, this sounds like a logical choice for the king. He's attractive. He has charisma. Realistic. Sure enough, the people demanded a king and God gave it to them. But rather than save the ship, rather than save Israel, Saul nearly sunk them. Soon after he started ruling, he became thin-skinned and hot-tempered. He was given to bouts of depression. He had murderous thoughts about his people. So much for the people's choice, huh? At this point in the nation of Israel, there's corruption from within. There's danger from without. Saul was weak. The nation was weaker. And God says this. God says it's time for a new leader. It's time for a new man. 1 Samuel 13, he says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And this is where we are introduced to David. One thing as we look at this series, one thing that we're going to, here time and time again, is that we're to be a people after God's own heart. But one of the things that we never see in God's word is we never see exactly what that means. There's never a description that says, if you're going to be a person after God's own heart, then here's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Do all these things and this will be you. So as we start out this series today, we're going to look at David's humble beginnings that really include the fall of Saul. Saul begins to decrease and David begins to increase. And so we're going to try and contrast David and Saul. Because if God called David a man after God's own heart, 
then we have to understand that by contrast, Saul was not a man after God's own heart. So in God's evaluation of Saul's heart, we're shown a couple of things that prevent us from being a man or woman after God's heart. The first thing, first thing we'll notice about Saul is Saul decided to live independent from God rather than, that rather than on dependence on God. So in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel, who was a prophet of God, he told Saul, he said, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to a certain place. I want you to go to a place called Gilgal, and I want you to wait there for seven days. Wait for me to come and meet up with you, and we will sacrifice to God, and then I will tell you what God wants you to do. So Samuel gave very specific instructions. Go to this place, wait for me. Don't do anything until I come, and I will show you exactly what God wants you to do. Saul, you got this? Of course, Saul says, yeah, I got this. Seven days passed. Towards the end of the seventh day, Samuel still has not showed up. So Saul became anxious. Saul became, came, became anxious, and he decided that he was going to go ahead and take matters into his own hands. Man, I'm tired of waiting on Samuel. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to step in and get this taken care of. Saul had one thing to do, to wait for God. But he didn't want to wait. And he opted instead to be independent from God. Now, this might seem like a small matter. But what God saw in Saul's heart was that Saul had a fundamental attitude that he was going to do whatever he wanted to do. Saul was impulsive. And this shows that he was independent from God, that he had a heart for doing his own thing. And so Samuel shows up shortly after, and he speaks for God, and he says in 1 Samuel 13, in verse 13, he said, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has brought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul, you're supposed to live dependent on God. You're supposed to depend on him and follow his plans. But Saul, because you have chosen your own plans... The kingdom is going to be taken from you now. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel chapter 15, almost to test things out, God issues kind of a final exam for Saul. So in 1 Samuel 15, we read that God had told Saul to destroy the Amalekites. This is really a terrible story. Samuel told Saul, I want you to go in and utterly destroy them. Leave absolutely nothing, no exceptions. Houses, livestock, men, women, children, you go destroy everything. So what happened? We'll see that not only was Saul living independently from God, but Saul was also disobedient towards God. Saul, I mean, he, he partly obeyed. I mean, he obeyed the parts that he agreed with, and he disobeyed the parts that he didn't agree with. I mean, isn't this what we do with God's word? Yeah, I'll, I'll obey the parts I agree with, and I believe, and I'll disobey the parts that I don't really like, that I don't agree with. This is what Saul did. 
So Saul goes off to battle with the Amalekites and he does as he pleases. And then he returns to Samuel and he says, Oh, Samuel, praise God, brother. Praise God. We had a great time. We did everything that God said. Hallelujah and amen. Samuel says, Well, Saul, Saul, if you've done all that God commanded you, then where did that herd of cattle come from that I see behind you? And Saul, Saul, if you did all that God commanded you, why do I keep hearing the bleeding of sheep? Because if you did what God had said to do, there would be no cattle. There would be no bleeding of sheep. Saul, at this point, he's caught. He's caught red-handed, and he knows it. But instead of repenting and making things right, this is what Paul, this is what Saul says in verse 15. He says, they, they have brought from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Notice what he did here. He says, they, they, the people, the soldiers, they did this. He's passing the buck. He's passing the blame onto them. Saul is the leader. He is responsible and he's trying to pass the blame onto somebody else. And look, look the excuse he says. He says, they took the animals to offer them as a sacrifice to God. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's disobeying God for, for religious purposes, right? I mean, that just makes perfect sense. So Samuel says to Saul in verse 26, he says, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. And Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul, you lived independently from God. You are living in disobedience of God. And now the kingdom of God, this kingdom is torn from you. I wonder, how does rejection of Saul sit with you? I mean, clearly he was not a man after God's own heart. Clearly he put his trust in himself and his desires and he was not dependent upon God. Clearly, he was disobedient of God, and God rejected him. Let me ask this. How many of us live independently of God? How many of us disobey God? I mean, how many, how many of us are making decisions without any dependence upon God at all, just like Saul? I mean, sure, sure, God, I know, I know God's word says that I shouldn't associate with this kind of person. I mean, sure, sure, I know God's word says that I should remain faithful in my marriage. Sure, sure, I know God's word says I'm supposed to stay committed to the church. I mean, sure, I know God's word says I'm supposed to honor my father and mother. But darn it, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm my own boss. I'm going to make my own decision. That's living independently of God. How many of us disobey God? And make all sorts of excuses. I mean, sure. Sure, the Bible says that our lives should be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, these are the things that should be outpouring from our lives. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. I mean, these are the things that Christians are supposed to exuberate from their life. Yet how many times do we act contrary to that? How many times do we fail to practice self-control, fail to be loving, to be kind, to be gentle, and we justify it and say, well, that's just the way I'm made. I'm, I'm a passionate person, and that's just the way I am. That's called an excuse for your disobedience. I mean, I know, I know. I know sex outside of marriage is wrong. But you know, God, me and this girl, we're going to get married one day anyway. So, you know, what does it really matter? It's okay. I know, God. I know I shouldn't be friends with this flirty woman at work who makes me feel good. But God, I'm only, I'm only friends with her so I can witness to her. Really, God, I just I want to see her get saved. Yes, God. God, I know I'm supposed to give and, and, and give to the church and tithe and something about 10%. But God, you know, I, I've got this debt. You know, and, and God, I've got retirement coming and I want to retire someday. So I've got some retirement planning that needs to happen. And so, God, I've just got these things that, uh, you know, I need to spend my, my, my resources on. I need to put all of my money towards these things. And someday, later down the road, when I'm financially secure and stable, God, just think about how much money I can give to you then. I'll have so much more to give to you. See, I don't think God buys our excuses. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, speaking about tithing, God says, bring the whole tithe and put me to the test and I'll prove my faithfulness to you. Put me to the test. Listen, we just got to deal with this this morning. Some of us in here, these are the markings of our lives. Living independently from God. Living in disobedience. Trusting in yourself and your plan and your wishes and not living dependently on God. Disobeying God's word and justifying that it's okay. You know, it can't really be that big of a sin. These might seem like little things, but listen, God looked at Saul and he saw these little things and they told him about Saul's heart. They told God that his heart was not set after God. He set after himself. And, and what you do is you just flirt with God without going deep because you want God's blessing, but you don't want to surrender and follow him. And look what happened to Saul. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. And God rejected him. One more disturbing thing about Saul. This fallen king, he's now been rejected by God. Dude, this dude even cried out to God and repented. He wept, he moaned, he pleaded. But at this point, but at this point, Saul's remorse was not honored by God. See, so many times when we express sorrow, we're not really sorry for our sin. But we're sorry because we were caught. We're sorry because of the consequences that our sin brings. This was Saul. He was sorry that the kingdom was taken from him. And God's verdict was clear. It's over, Saul. Your pattern of self-will is irreversibly established. So Saul, he wasn't a man after God's own heart. So God tells Saul through the prophet, 1 Samuel 13, he says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And this man after God's own heart is the beginning of David's story. David's story doesn't begin in a huge castle in Jerusalem. His story doesn't even begin in a battlefield with Goliath. His story begins on the hillsides of a podunk, backroads type of town called Bethlehem. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. See, this is a thousand years before the baby will be born in a manger in Bethlehem. And here God says, send Samuel to find a king. Samuel's arrival in the town, it turns the heads of the citizens because prophets don't visit places like Bethlehem. Everybody knows that there's problems in the Oval Office. They know about the problems with Saul. So they're wondering, why is a prophet coming to Bethlehem? Samuel calms everybody's nerves by explaining that he's coming to sacrifice an animal to God. And through God's direction, Samuel invites the elders of the city and Jesse, as well as Jesse's sons, to join him. And everybody's come together. And no one has any clue what's about to happen. Even Samuel doesn't know which man God is going to choose. Samuel starts looking around. It says in verse 6, When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab, he makes perfect sense to become the king. Because he looks, at kind, of, he looks kind of like the guy that you'd normally choose to be a king. I mean, you know the type. Starting QB on the football team. Strong, rugged. He was a man of battle. We see him in the next chapter. He's serving alongside Saul uh, against the, the Philistines in battle. I mean, this is a guy that Samuel thinks, this is it. He's the king. But what Samuel didn't know was Samuel didn't know his character. And God tells him, wrong man. This isn't it. So verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Picture, picture the town Casanova. You know, this is probably a guy who wears skinny jeans. He's probably got the hipster haircut, wavy hair, strong jaw, probably a little bit of bling bling. But you see, God's not concerned with good looks. And it says, and neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, then Jesse made Shammah pass by. Shammah, he's the third brother. He's probably not as good looking as the others, but picture him to be bookish. Studious, smart, busting with brains. He's the intelligent brother. You can picture 
Jesse whispering to Samuel, Valedictorian of Bethlehem High. Samuel's impressed, but God isn't. And God says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So verse 10 says, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Seven sons pass before Samuel. Seven, seven sons that Samuel sees potential. And seven sons that fail in God's sight. Then suddenly, in the midst of this parade of possibilities, we find God's principle for choosing. It says in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, Samuel, he is like you and I. We are misled by beauty. We are influenced by external appearances and circumstances. We see people by face, and we fail to look at their heart. But God God, he's different. Sure, sure, God is all for beauty. I mean, God created beauty. God is all for beauty. But unlike you and I, God is never misled by it. God is all for beauty, but he is never misled by it. God looks past the outward appearances. He looks at the heart. And this is what God is saying to Samuel. He's saying, I've seen Eliab. I've seen Abinadab. I've seen Shammah. I've seen the other sons. I've seen them all. But I've seen them as they really are. I've seen their hearts. So then Samuel says to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Wasn't this a similar question that was posed by the prince to Cinderella's stepmother that caused her to agonize in fear? He says, and he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send for him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. The word here for the youngest implies more than just age. It implies rank. He was more than just the younger brother. He was the littlest brother. He was the runt of the litter. He was the baby. Keeping watch over the sheep. That's the kind of job that you give to the littlest brother. Sheep are dumb. So put the little boy in a place where he can't cause any trouble. And this is where we find David. And the pasture with a flock of sheep. The Bible is going to devote 66 chapters to the life of David. More than anyone else in the Bible outside of Jesus. The New Testament is going to mention David's name 59 times. David is going to establish and inhabit the world's most famous city, Jerusalem. The Son of God, Jesus, will be called the Son of David. David will be known as a great warrior, a great king, a giant killer. But today, he's not even in the family meeting. He's just a forgotten, uncredentialed kid performing a menial task to keep him out of everybody's hair. Restoration Church, this is my prayer for myself, for every one of us in here. My prayer is that we would develop the ability to see beyond the obvious. My prayer is that we develop the ability to see beyond the bad track record, to see beyond the smelly clothes and unshowered body, 
to see beyond the broken marriage, to see beyond a person's age or their level of intelligence or their appearance of success. My prayer is that we would see the worth and value of people deep down. Because just seeing a person beyond the obvious, just recognizing them for who they are, has such power in a person's life. And he sent and brought him in. Verse 12. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Here's David. He's just a teenager. He walks into the house smelling like a teenage boy and sheep. And suddenly the old prophet pours oil on David's head and whispers in his ear, You are the man after God's own heart. You will be the next king. Restoration Church, my prayer is that every one of us would be a man, a woman, a teen, a child, that we would be a person after God's own heart. I pray that we would be dependent upon God that we would be obedient to him. I pray that what is important to him would be important to us. I pray that what burdens him would burden us. My prayer is that when he says go to the right, that we go to the right. When he says stop doing this in your life, that you stop it. When he says this is wrong and I want you to change, my prayer is that we would come to terms with it because we have hearts for God. And my prayer is that we would develop the skill to see beyond the obvious. That we'd see people how God sees them. That we'd love them with the same kind of love that God extends to us. Let's pray.